We're going to be this morning looking at Mark uh, 15, verses 1 through 15. Uh, But since many of you weren't here last week, I'm just going to go back to chapter 14. And and we're going to read from verse 53 all the way to Mark 1 to to verse 15. Okay? Sorry, Mark 15, 1 to 15. So, Mark 14, verse 53, that's where I'm going to begin reading. Okay? And they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priests. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named, a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this very intense but powerful passage, we pray that by your Spirit you would truly give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive your word this morning. Let not your word return void. Give me clarity as I communicate your word. And Lord, by your Spirit, strengthen, rebuke, edify, encourage, convict, accomplish your will here this morning in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw last week that Jesus was taken in the night and brought before the religious leaders, the religious Sanhedrin. And in the midst of them, he was falsely accused for a number of things, though none of the testimonies agreed. He was then confronted by Caiaphas, the high priest, about his identity. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That is the Son of God. That was the real issue. And that was the only moment where Jesus responds. And how he responds was startling. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus here claims to be the Son of God, sharing the same divine essence as God, and that one day he will return in power and glory and establish his eternal kingdom upon the earth. And because of this, they accuse him of blasphemy and call for his death. They understood what he was claiming. And many spat on him, and many mocked him and struck him. And then we're told in the beginning of chapter 15, the very next morning, the first thing they do, the whole council of the religious leaders consulted with one another, and they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered to Pilate. Now the reason for this was because Israel was under Roman rule, which means that the Jews could not put a man to death according to their own law. They would need the approval of Rome. And so they bring Jesus bound to Pilate, and it's here where Jesus is questioned by Pilate. And it's actually a very short moment in the Gospel of Mark. John's account gives this long conversation between Jesus and Pilate, but here in Mark it's quite short. Pilate was the governor of Judea, he, and he was in Jerusalem because the Passover was at hand, and so he was there to, to maintain the peace in Jerusalem. Now, historical sources portray Pilate as a very harsh man. He was considered greedy and cruel and hated the Jewish people. We'll also learn some other things about Pilate that the biblical text reveals as we move along. But this is the man who the Jewish religious leaders bring before, bring Jesus before. What happens to Jesus rests upon the shoulders 
of this man. This man has the power and the authority to either free Jesus or condemn him to death. And so in verse 2, we're told that Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. Now, why would Pilate ask that? Well, because the religious leaders would have, before Pilate, accused Jesus of claiming to be a king. Now, of course, this doesn't align with what they condemned him for the night before. They condemned him for blasphemy, for claiming to be the Son of God. But before before Pilate, blasphemy would mean nothing to him. They needed something else in order for Pilate to condemn him to death. You see, in chapter 14, they condemned him for religious reasons, blasphemy. But before Pilate, they accuse him of being an insurrectionist. That is, they condemn him for political reasons. He claims to be a king, Pilate. Now, this would have gotten Pilate's attention. To claim to be the king of the Jews would be a direct challenge to Caesar. Because Caesar claimed to be the king of the Jews. This would have been a capital offense. And so Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds with, you have said so. It's an interesting response because Jesus turns Pilate's question into a statement. In other words, he doesn't directly answer it, but he implies it. And he says, Pilate, you've asked it, but really you've said it. Now, the chief priests continue to make allegations against Jesus, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Now, it's interesting. These are almost the exact words that Caiaphas asked Jesus when the religious tribunal accused him of many things. But just like with Caiaphas, Jesus responds in the same way to Pilate. Jesus made no further answer. And we're told that Pilate was amazed at the silence of Jesus. He was amazed at the complete silence of Jesus Christ. Why? What was it about Jesus' response that amazed the Roman governor? Well, some possibilities. Could it have been just the sheer calmness and confidence of Jesus in the midst of evil accusations against him? The dignity in which Jesus revealed himself as he was bound before Pilate? Could it also be that that it's the contrast of Jesus to the other men who would have been tried under Pilate's rule? I mean, one has to wonder how many men Pilate had seen plead for their lives like little whimpering children. How many argued for their innocence despite being guilty? Pilate would have heard the cries and seen the terrified faces of many men who were facing death row for their crimes. But Jesus' response was something he probably never saw before. And it amazed him. Who was this man that stood before him so silent And so calm. Who was this man who refused to defend himself against the false accusations of the religious leaders? 
And so here we see Pilate's questioning of Jesus and also his amazement at Jesus' response. But in verses 6 to 15, we see Pilate's moral compromise. Pilate's moral compromise. It was custom during the Passover for Pilate to release for the Jews any person for whom they asked. And we're told that the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them what he usually would do. He would release for them a prisoner. Now among the rebels in prison, there was a man named Barabbas who had committed murder in the insurrection. Barabbas was an actual insurrectionist. Jesus was not. And Pilate decided to grant to the Jews to choose between Jesus or Barabbas. Now, it's clear from the text that Pilate had thought that the people would choose Jesus. For he discerned, according to verse 8, that the religious leaders had simply delivered Jesus to him because of envy. You see, Pilate was a discerning man. Not only did he discern that the religious leaders were envious of Jesus, but he also discerned that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus didn't commit any crime deserving of death. Luke's gospel gives us even more detail. Pilate actually tells the chief priests and the crowd that he he finds no basis for an accusation against Jesus. This is why when the Jews cried out and uh, crucify him, he responds in verse 14 with, Why? What evil has he done? In other words, he hasn't done anything worthy of being crucified. And so it seems that Pilate had thought that if he granted the Jewish crowd to choose between Barabbas and Jesus, they would without doubt choose Jesus over Barabbas. And so in verse 9, he says to them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But verse 11 tells us that the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Barabbas released instead of Jesus. We don't know fully what they did, but somehow they stirred up the crowd to cry out for the release of Barabbas rather than Jesus. And that's why Pilate is surprised And he responds in verse 12, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? You see, Pilate is trying to reason with them. But they, they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And then we see this line in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Release for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Here was Pilate's moral compromise. He was a powerful man, even a discerning man, but he was an immoral man. Why didn't Pilate just say, enough, there are no just grounds to crucify Jesus? Why did he give in to their outrageous demands? Because deep down, Pilate ultimately only cared about himself and his own reputation. In Matthew's account, we're told that when Pilate perceived that a riot was beginning to break out, that's when he decided to wash his hands before the people and claim that he was innocent of Jesus' blood. 
You see, the last thing that Pilate wanted on his resume under his leadership was a riot. The last thing he wanted was for word to get back to Rome that under his leadership, chaos ensued in Jerusalem. His control and authority, his own reputation was more important to him than the innocent life of Jesus Christ. His own reputation was more important than truth and justice. And therefore he chose to satisfy the crowd rather than uphold justice. It was not just a selfish decision, but a murderous decision. He had Jesus murdered. He handed an innocent man to the mob for his own sake. Now, why is this important to us? Because there's a moral lesson here for us. Though none of us are governors like Pilate, the fact of the matter is we can and will be placed in situations where there are two choices. One, do that which is right and good and just. And two, do that which protects and maintains self. Pilate had a choice. Do that which is right, just, and good, or do that which would protect himself and his name. He chose the latter over the former and condemned an innocent man to death. You know, as I've been studying the final days of Jesus' life in Mark's gospel, I noticed that from the final meal that Jesus had with his disciples, the, the night he instituted the Lord's Supper, every single person in the narrative ultimately is governed by that which they believe is best for self rather than living by that which is morally right and good except Jesus. Judas portrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, selfish. The religious leaders arrest Jesus and falsely accuse him because they're envious of him and he's wreaking havoc on their reputation and influence self-preservation. The disciples all abandoned Jesus in his darkest moment because what dictated their decision was the preservation of self. Peter denied Jesus three times to preserve self. Pilate handed Jesus over to be condemned ultimately for self. Whereas Jesus is the only one through this whole narrative who denies himself. And lives according to the goodness, according to goodness and love in the service of others. You see, the increasing hostility of our culture towards Christian beliefs and values will inevitably put some of us in situations where we will have to choose whether or not we will do what is right and bear the possible consequences or whether we will do what will ultimately protect us and preserve ourselves. Many successful Christians in Slovakia, when their nation was conquered by Soviet Russia, many of them were given difficult choices. If they swore allegiance to communist Russia, they could keep their reputable positions, and their children would be able to attend the best schools and have good careers. And there were, sadly, many professing Christians 
who chose to swear their allegiance to communist Russia. They maintained the life they had, but they compromised. Instead of doing that which was right and good, they chose self over anything else. But there were also many Christians who didn't compromise. And because of their commitment and their conviction to the Lord, many of them lost high-paying jobs. For example, one could go from being an accomplished professor, professor to being a janitor, making probably three to four times less than what one had been making previously. And many of their children didn't have the opportunity to go to the reputable schools. They were the outcasts of society, but they kept their integrity. There was something more important to them than the mere preservation of self, their allegiance to Jesus Christ. We will each be placed in situations where we will have to decide whether our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to truth and goodness, is more important than self. And by the Spirit of God, I pray that we will be found worthy. Pilate was a moral compromiser, and because of this, he gave in to the wicked mob's irrational cry for murder. And that's the third thing that I want us to see in this passage, the wicked mob's irrational cry for murder. They chose Barabbas, and when Pilate asked them what he should do with the man they call the king of the Jews, the people cry out in verse 13, crucify him. Crucify him. But Pilate, Pilate tries to reason with them in verse 14. Why? What evil has he done? And how do they respond? And they shouted all the more. Crucify him. Here we have a picture of humanity completely given over to their base instincts devoid of all reason. They have become an irrational mob, controlled solely by their evil impulses and desires. Reason and truth and facts will have no power here. It's a battle not for truth, but rather who can bark louder. And the one with the louder bark shall prevail. Not even false accusations are necessary anymore, but the all-consuming cry, crucify him, will be enough for Pilate to bend the knee to their evil desires. You see, here with the Jewish crowd, we see the power of the human will to overcome all forms of resistance to accomplish their evil purposes. As Wynandi states, what transpires next in the Passion narratives is the triumph of the sin-darkened will, which is devoid of any rationality. What we will see is sinful Adam and the sinful race he conceived come to full term. Satan's definitive attempt to have evil's darkness snuffed out Sorry, Satan's definitive attempt to have evil's darkness snuff out good's light. The Jewish authorities and the crowd not only demonstrate no interest in leveling further lies, 
Their shout, crucify him, is merely the expression of their will, devoid of all rationality. Even a rationality that would be underwritten by falsehood. Jesus will now be executed for no other reason than the wholly perverse will of an irrational mob. You know, I've always found this part of the gospel uh, narrative perplexing. I found it hard to relate to growing up and reading the Gospels. But the last few years has shown me very tangibly the utter power and demonic nature of the human will devoid of all reason. Where truth no longer matters, but simply the cries of the mob calling for whatever they want, regardless of what the truth is. And friends... We shouldn't be surprised when we see this, for it happened at the trial of our Savior. You see, we tend to think that people are ultimately controlled by reason. This is why we often think that if we win an argument, then we can change a person's mind or belief. My job is to use reason to convince people of truth. But that so often isn't the case. Because people are not fundamentally controlled by reason. We think we are, but we're not. It is not reason, but desire that often dictates what humans will do in any given situation. For example, you can give all the reasons in the world for why pornography is immoral and harmful to a person's sexuality. But if that person wants it, desires it, reason will have very little control over whether he does or doesn't consume it. And this is what we see in this passage with the Jewish mob. No argument, no reason would remotely impact this crowd. They willed, they desired for his death. And their will would prevail over the truth. But here's what I want us to see. What did Israel actually do in this moment? What did the religious leaders and the Jewish crowd actually do in this moment when they chose Barabbas over Jesus and cried for Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what I think they did. They chose a false Messiah over the true Messiah. They chose a false Messiah over the true Messiah. When they cried out for Barabbas, they chose an insurrectionist rather than Jesus. They chose a man that was, in some capacity, involved in using violence to fight against Rome, which fit much better with their idea of who the Messiah was. They wanted wanted a Messiah who would bear the sword, kill their enemies, not a weak, non-violent, humble servant man like Jesus. Not only that, The name of of Barabbas means the son of the father. So before them stood Barabbas, the son of the father, a false son, and Jesus, the son of the father, the true son. 
And they chose Barabbas, the insurrectionist, and murderer. But the Jews are not the only people who fall prey to such ways. Every nation and people want heroes who are defined by strength and power, not meekness and servanthood. I mean, what do you think happened in Germany with the rise of Hitler? The people gave their allegiance to a man not because he demonstrated humility and servanthood and gentleness. They followed him because of his strength and his power. And they believed that he would be the man to restore Germany after its humiliation in World War I. You see, we can all fall prey to the false messiahs of our world who reveal themselves not by servanthood or humility and gentleness, but power and strength. And let's be honest, this even happens in the church, where Christians are drawn in by, by pastors who have such power and influence and authority, yet lack gentleness, humility, and the meekness of Christ. But when we see the sufferings of Christ, when we see his silence and his humiliation, we are reminded that true strength and power doesn't always look the way the world thinks it ought to look. True glory and greatness, according to the gospel, looks very differently than the way the world thinks of glory and greatness. And if we as Christians are not careful, we can succumb to those same temptations to look for individuals with strength and power to lead us or to prevail in our nation, whatever it may be. We as Christians do not conquer Satan and the fallenness of this world and the darkness of this world through political means or through strength and power. How do we conquer this world? Revelation chapter 12, 11 tells us how we conquer Satan and the darkness of this world. There's this incredible vision that John is given in Revelation 12, where Satan is thrown out of heaven. And we read this about the covenant people of God. This is how you and I, as Christians, conquer Satan and this world. This is what we read in verse 11. And they, that is God's people, have conquered him. Satan, how? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That is the testimony of the gospel. And then he says this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You want to know how to conquer Satan in the darkness of this world? by the blood of Jesus Christ, by being faithful to the testimony of the gospel, and by not loving your life more than, more, uh, not loving your life more than death. Being willing to die for the sake of Christ. We as Christians do not conquer by taking life, we conquer by giving up our lives for the sake of the gospel. And we too, like this Jewish mob, like many people throughout history, can fall prey to the temptation to look for a different kind of Messiah than the one we have here in the Gospel. They chose a false Messiah over the true Messiah. But you know what they also did? 
In their choosing Barabbas, they chose death over life. They chose death over life. Who was Barabbas? He was a murderer. He took life. They chose a murderer rather than the author of life. They chose a man who took life and rejected the man who gave life. Before them stood death and life. And they chose death. They chose a man who killed another human being and they rejected a man who raised the dead. Now you may think, I would never do that. I would never do that. I mean, if I had to choose between Jesus and Barabbas, I would always choose Jesus. Oh, really? Are you so sure about that? See, I think in this story, Barabbas represents sin and death. And Jesus, of course, represents life. He is life itself. Every time you choose sin rather than Christ and his ways, you are ultimately choosing death rather than life. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they ultimately chose death over life. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they chose to eat of that tree. They chose death over life. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 5-6 says this, For those who live according to the flesh, that is the sinful desires, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And then he says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. See, every time we choose sin rather than Christ, every time we choose the sinful flesh, we choose death rather than life. Every time you click on that mouse to look at pornography, you choose death over life. Every time you lash out in anger against your spouse, you choose death over life. Every time you deceive and lie, you choose death over life. Every time you covet after something that is not yours, you choose death over life. Every time you grumble and complain, you choose death over life. Every time you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness against another person, you choose death over life. Every time you live for self, rather than living in the service of others, you choose death over life. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.13 said, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, that is, you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. See, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, please hear these words. The Bible does not mince words when it comes to the destiny of humanity. There are only two options, life and death. And I'm not just speaking about physical life and death. I'm talking about spiritual life and death. The Bible paints a picture of people being physically alive, but are actually just walking corpses. But just as the Jews chose Barabbas, who represents death, over Jesus, who is life, so all, all of us have two options before us. 
life or death. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, that there are two gates. One gate leads to destruction and death, and the other gate leads to life and eternal happiness. He says in Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, death. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are only two gates. The scriptures do not mince words about this. There is the gate of death and the gate of life. There is the way of death and the way of life. And to choose Jesus Christ is to enter the gate of life and to walk the way of life. To reject Him, to choose sin, is to enter the gate of death and the way of death. Which gate will you choose this day? The gate of death or the gate of life? Barabbas, who represents sin and death, Or Jesus, the author of life, the Savior of the world. The Jewish crowd chose Barabbas over Jesus. They chose death over the author of life. Here we see the wicked, irrational cries of a people wanting the murder of a sinless, righteous man. But there's something else I also want us to see, which leads to my final point. In the freeing of Barabbas and the condemnation of Jesus, there is a foreshadowing of the gospel itself. There's a foreshadowing of the gospel itself. In verse 15 we read, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. A scourging was a horrific form of punishment. A man would be tied up to a pole and would be whipped with this leather whip, which would have several pieces of bone, glass, or lead to form a chain. History shows that a person could be flogged so horrifically that one's entrails were visible or one's bones were made visible. In fact, many died from the scourging itself. Pilate had Jesus scourged before he had him delivered to be crucified. In fact, John's gospel, which gives more details, suggests that Pilate actually had Jesus scourged with the hope that that would be enough to satisfy the crowds. But it wasn't. Nothing but the death of Jesus would satisfy the crowds. But here's what I really want us to see in verse 15. There's an exchange that takes place. Barabbas is released. He's set free. Jesus is scourged, condemned, and delivered to be crucified. The sinful, murderous criminal is released and walks free. Jesus Christ, the sinless, righteous Son of God, is condemned as a criminal. This is a small picture of the gospel of why Jesus was being tried and ultimately crucified in the first place. He would die in the place of sinners. 
The gospel is partially manifested in the release of Barabbas and the condemnation of Jesus. This moment captures the gospel exchange. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sinful, wicked murderer and criminal is set free and the sinless, innocent, righteous Son of God is condemned. This is a foreshadowing of the gospel itself. And it captures so powerfully everything that's happening here in this passage is actually the redemptive will of God unfolding before our very eyes. The religious leaders, Pilate and the crowd, could never have done what they did unless Jesus willingly submitted himself to it all. They bound him. No. He let them bind him. He was bound for us. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, for the love of Christ controls us. That is, the love of Christ binds us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. They did not bind him. He let them bind him. He was silent because he, he couldn't defend himself. No. He was silent because he was the suffering servant. And he was utterly committed to fulfilling his mission to suffer as God's servant on behalf of sinners. He was weak and intimidated by Pilate and his power to crucify him. No. You remember Jesus' words in John 19? Pilate said to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. He was scourged and delivered to be crucified because he didn't have the strength and the power to overcome his enemies. No. He was scourged and delivered to be crucified because he had the power and the strength to overcome self and die for the sins of the world. This whole scene makes you think that the religious leaders and Pilate and the crowd were the ultimate determiners of the unfolding of these events. But we know that this was all a part of God's sovereign redemptive plan and Jesus was simply fulfilling that plan. As we read in Acts 4, 27 to 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, that is God's hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. As Wynandi so beautifully states, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, Herod, Pilate, and even Satan may appear to be the controlling actors in whose presence Jesus stands helplessly bound and confoundedly silent. Yet the suffering, suffering songs poignantly intone a different song. They sing a glorious tale. The divine drama of salvation 
orchestrated by the Father and performed by the Spirit, Father's Spirit-anointed Son. And as such, this ballad narrates the truth. Barabbas being released, Jesus being condemned. None of this is just random. We are seeing what the death of Jesus will ultimately mean. The righteous Son of God will die in the place of sinners and bear their punishment for their sins. So what does this all mean? Well, if you're not a Christian, it means you ought to embrace Jesus. All of what's happening here, Jesus is doing on behalf of sinners because of his love for sinners. He died to set sinners free. He he died to set you free from sin and death if you would but repent and believe upon him and follow him. If you are a Christian, you know the hope of the gospel and the hope of salvation. Mark writes this gospel to the church in Rome which was facing persecution. And part of what Mark is doing in his gospel is is showing the Christians in Rome what it means to be a true disciple of Christ and to follow Jesus. And he's telling us that to follow Jesus is to come into conflict with this hostile world because Jesus came into conflict with this hostile world. It means that you will be falsely accused and mocked and hated. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or in John 15, 18 to 21, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And the question is, brothers and sisters, will we count the cost? And follow Jesus on the road to Calvary, ready to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, because he suffered to deliver us from sin and death. Or as the the writer of Hebrews puts it, in Hebrews 13.11-14, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, that is outside the gate of Jerusalem, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Why? For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let us go to him and bear the reproach he endured. And hear these words of Jesus. I have said these things to you 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we take great comfort knowing that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, has overcome the world. And he has overcome it through his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And I pray that by your spirit, that we, your children, would this morning be utterly committed to you, no matter what that may cost us. That we would be most concerned about our devotion to Jesus, about doing that which is good and right, rather than concern for our own lives. And Lord, for anyone here who yet does not know Christ, in your mercy, save them. In your mercy, grant them repentance and everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray.